And please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, the passage that we looked at a little bit earlier. Eight to ten-year-olds are dismissed. If you'd like to go to your class. Uh, as most of you know, I'm, I stepped out of First Corinthians for a time. You also know how I hate stepping out of books. <laughs> um, but there's some truths in First Corinthians 12 to 14 that the church has been confused about for a long time. And because I don't want to pull the car over every mile as we go through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I thought, well, let me just try to clarify some of these things, and then we'll go through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, understanding already a number of things so that we can better understand what Paul is actually trying to say. So, uh, last week we looked at what tongues were, the gift of tongues were in the Bible, and what the gift of prophecy was in the Bible. Today, we're going to seek to answer the question, are sign gifts of which tongues and prophecy are probably the most prominent, at least they were uh, there in Corinth, are the sign gifts for today. And I'll tip you off, if you couldn't tell already from my message last week, uh, my argument is no, that they're not, and I'll explain that in a moment. So, our sign gifts for today. I don't know that if many of you know this, but um, I was raised in a background where um, it was taught that the sign gifts are for today. And so, I speak as one with great knowledge about the arguments made by that group. Uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church until the age of 17, went off to college for three years uh, to a Pentecostal Bible school where these things were taught as well. I didn't go for the doctrine. I really went because I was on an athletic scholarship, but that's kind of the place I knew, and I went, and I uh, was around that, immersed in that. And so I thought it'd be helpful just to kind of give you a little bit of that background um, for maybe those of you who are in, the back, in, in that part of that teaching today in some way or are unsure about it or trying to make sense of it. Um, got personal experience in that background. I think some things, highlighting some things from that experience and from that background might be helpful to you. Um, I did grow up in the 1980s and 90s. Um, and grew up in an environment where the Pentecostal movement was maybe more prominent in America than it is today. I know that it's still prominent, but those were kind of the, the heyday uh, of the Pentecostal movement in North America. You've, some of you know about the, the Toronto Blessing and things like that. Um, I would often go to church uh, there in California, and during the church service, during the singing time, have people fall on the ground all around me laughing. Um, That was called holy laughter, as uh, the Holy Spirit, they would argue, was coming upon them, and they would just laugh uncontrollably. I don't say this to mock at all. I just want to tell you that this is what can happen. This is what goes on. Um, People around me uh, barking like dogs, saying that that was the Holy Spirit moving, uh, rolling around on the floor. Interestingly, Um, well, maybe not interestingly or not surprisingly, uh, that church didn't preach through the Bible. They would refer to the Bible. Um, It would not be uncommon to show up on a Sunday morning and for those types of things to be happening and for the pastor to say, I'm not going to preach today. Evidently, the Holy Spirit is moving. And we see in the Scriptures that 
the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word of God. We see Peter and Paul um, really at, at the end of their ministry pointing believers to the Word of God. So the Word of God is to be proclaimed, announced, and um, I know that my own sin was a problem before God then, but I also know that I didn't have a steady diet of His gospel growing up. Uh, I didn't have the Scriptures opened to me growing up. I remember the legalism I was around when people would try to force me and others to speak in tongues, and when, what they, when they said speak in tongues, they meant speak in an unintelligible language, and there was this pressure literally with people around you placing their hands on you, trying to get you to do that, and if you didn't, there was something wrong with your relationship to God. Uh, the gospel teaches something differently. I remember being embarrassed in that situation. If you would have said, hey, you should invite a friend to church, I'd say, no way. <laughs> I did not want the kids at school to know where I went to church. Did not want them to know about those kinds of things. I remember, though, in that church, a number of committed Christians. My dear grandmother would go and sit with all of her friends. They all... Uh, sat in one section of the church, and she would be there faithfully Sunday in, Sunday out. Such a woman of faith and prayer who I love. She was part of that church. I remember a sixth grade Sunday school teacher, um, a gracious man named Tony that taught a group of us boys. And he, that was the very first place I heard the word doctrine. He taught us sound doctrine. Now, he wasn't at that church long, <laughs> Um, but he taught us faithfully. And I remember his winsomeness, his kindness. I remember him constantly opening the Bible on Sundays with us. Um, he's been a family friend for years, still, still is. I remember him, and I thank the Lord for him. When my parents were divorced, my dad continued going to that church, and I remember a sweet couple. I don't remember their names, uh, but I remember them telling my dad one day, they knew we didn't have much, and they, I remember them saying, we want to have you over whenever you want to come over. We want you and your kids to come and have lunch with us after church. Uh, they just wanted to care for us. I remember just some sweet people in that place. I remember some spiritually abusive leaders in that place. My point in saying this is, in those environments, you've got people all over the map. Some people that may actually not be Christians and might even preach another gospel. And you've actually got some Christians in those environments who don't understand certain things, but they have been born again by the Spirit. They have been made alive in Christ. They do trust Christ and His work on the cross. They trust the gospel, and they just happen to be in those environments. So my, my goal in doing these two weeks is just to give you some information about what the Scriptures say about these gifts and to answer some questions about whether they exist or not. Uh, or not. Um, my goal is not to take everyone who's ever been associated with that group and say somehow that they're unbelievers, okay? Um, I told you after leaving this church, I went to college and went to a Pentecostal Bible college. One of my closest friends is the son of probably the most famous Pentecostal teacher in America today. Um, I remember going to his house in Redding, California, when he first moved there and started his ministry and staying overnight. Um, 
just, I was just around that environment. But then I started going to church um, there in Santa Cruz um, at a church that was known more for preaching the Bible. I think I went probably because of a girl <laughs> or some friends or something. Don't know why I ended up going there. But I started to hear the Scriptures taught. And some of you know this about my testimony. One of the things that kept sticking out to me um, as I would go there was, I'm in trouble with God. See, I grew up a good kid. Uh, I would have told you I was going to heaven because I wasn't like other kids my age. Well, the self-righteous don't go to heaven. But no one ever told me that. I went to this church in college and I realized I'm in trouble. Um, you would think that if I was a Christian when I got off to college, I would continue growing in my faith if it was real. Uh, no, there were no longer parents around. There were no longer authorities. I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And I didn't become more holy. I became far worse because that's who I was. And then hearing the gospel of Christ, um, I told you before, I grew up going to a Christian school. I memorized scriptures. I, I had Bible tests. But in college, for the first time, I realized, and it sounds so elementary, but you, some of you, or you realize this if you're a Christian, I realized from the heart that I needed Jesus Christ. I needed Him. And He died for me. And that just became real to me then. I was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And I, I've told you before, I, had, I didn't have a theological bone in my body. I didn't know where to go, what to do. Uh, I ended up moving down to Los Angeles, started going to a church that preached the Bible, and I started growing. And this church took the historic view, the view that most of church history has taken, that the sign gifts were for the apostolic era, not for today. And that was revolutionary to me. I'd never heard that. It ends up being, again, the argument from almost all of church history until about the mid-20th century. And I didn't know that. That was foreign to me. It wasn't foreign to church history. It was foreign to me. And so, as I'm learning the Scriptures, learning sound doctrine, learning theology, I'm realizing these things aren't right. This is not good. And then I kind of swung the other way, where everyone who's ever thought anything different about the sign gifts or think that they're for today, they must all be going to hell. Well, hold on a little bit, young Christian. <laughs> um, that's not true. There are people today who believe the sign gifts are continuing, who love the gospel, who love Christ, who trust in Him for salvation, not their own merit. But there also are some who hold that these sign gifts continue on that do teach heresy and do teach false gospels, and they should be avoided. So I share all of that because needless to say, the topic of spiritual gifts in the church is not easy to navigate. Some of you have questions. You don't know how to make sense of what you've done in the past or things that people tell you you should do today. You don't know how to make sense of verses that are thrown at you out of context that seem to indicate that maybe speaking unintelligibly is for today, and that's somehow a sign gift. So I want to try to serve this church by making some sense of all of this. So I've got two points today. First, that the sign gifts have ceased. The sign gifts 
have ceased. Sign gifts, or as Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of, a, of the apostle, or the signs of a true apostle. The sign gifts have ceased. And secondly, I want to walk through this truth, that unintelligible speech is not the biblical gift of tongues. Okay, so those are the two things that we're going to be doing today. And, and I'll invite you like I did last week. If you have any questions, please come down and talk to me afterward. Um, I've got strong convictions about this, but hopefully you'll see that I am definitely willing to talk, and I'm actually a real nice guy out of the pulpit. <laughs> um, so I'd really welcome you to come and ask any questions you could have. I'll try to answer them as I'm able. Um, if you haven't listened to last week's message, uh, I would encourage you to do so. It, it, it uh, helps bring to light even some of the things that I'm going to walk through today. Um, and also, la- like, like last week, get ready to turn in your Bibles, okay? It's not kind of a classic sermon through a text. I'm going to be showing you different things in the Scriptures, hopefully making sense of the context for you, but get ready to turn. Uh, well, the sign gifts have ceased is my first point, first argument. And before we get into the reasons why, let me just again give some caveats or some information. Uh, what are the sign gifts? The sign gifts are what the Holy Spirit gave to individuals in the early church to demonstrate the power behind their preaching, and it gave the church information needed prior to having the Scriptures themselves. So really kind of two reasons for the sign gifts. One, it showed that these people preaching repentance in the name of Jesus Christ and life in the name of Jesus Christ, and the fact that Jesus Christ has died and rose again, and that you need to repent and come to Him for salvation, the people preaching that actually had the ability to do things that were amazing. There was a power behind them, and that was God. And those powers are really signs to show that there's a reversal of the curse that's happening. So even think about healing. Why that power? Well, because people weren't created to die. We die because of Adam and Eve's sin, and therefore then our own sin. But death was not the original design. It was life with God, and then man sins, woman sins, and there's death. And so, one of the signs given to the apostles and to Jesus was the raising of the dead. There's something there. There's something to their teaching. There's the raising of the dead. And even the gift of tongues, speaking in a language that that you know, but someone who doesn't know that language, hearing in their own language the mighty works of God, the deeds of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then sending that message out as they go back to their home. That that was um, a sign that God is about saving the Gentiles, saving the world, if you will. So these sign gifts are meant to validate the message that these apostles are preaching. Sign gifts like tongues, we talked about last week, ability to work miracles, healings, prophecy. What is prophecy? Again, we talked about this more last week. Prophecy is the spontaneous, infallible, without error, the spontaneous, infallible speaking of someone by the Holy Spirit for the good of the church. Prophecy. Spontaneous, infallible, and it helped to encourage and guide the church. What were tongues? Again, see last week, but just as a reminder, a speaking gift that some Christians had where they were able to speak the works of God in their own language so that the peoples of other languages could understand the gift of languages, if you will. Now, when I say the sign gifts have ceased, or if you go 
Google this stuff, which doesn't mean research, by the way, okay? <laughs> if you go Google things, people constantly misrepresent the position that I'm articulating for you today. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I don't know how, how much more of an insult you can lobby at me personally than you don't believe in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit made me alive. The Spirit opens my mind to the Scripture. The Spirit shows me Christ. We could go on and on, and I will in a moment, but um, that's not true. You don't believe in miracles today. That's not true. You don't believe God heals today. That's not true. So let's get all the not true things out, okay? Notes for clarification. Our position is that, here's the position, is that the gifting of certain people with the sign gifts does not happen today. The gifting of certain people with these gifts. And it's so interesting, the people who claim to be healers today, charging so much money to come to their conventions, shut down the tent and go into the hospital if you've got the gift. But it doesn't happen. So my argument isn't that there's not healing today. We pray for that often in this church. It's that people aren't gifted with the gift of healing others today. Our position does not say that God can't work in the way that He did before. So some who would have a different position than I would and the elders and most of church history would say, well, you don't think God can work in the same way. That's, that's actually not true. In theological debates, it's so important to represent your opponent rightly, and that's not true. It's that God has determined to work in a certain way after the apostles were off the scene. It's not that He can't do anything. He can do whatever He wants. But it's that He's chosen to work by His Word now, by the Spirit empowering the Word. Our position does not believe miracles have ceased, as I said before. If you tell me I heard of someone speaking the Word of God in the jungles of South America, and they spoke the Word in their own language, and other people heard in a different language, okay, I would not be surprised by that. I'm just arguing that people aren't gifted in an ongoing way to do that like they were in the first century. But it's not that those things couldn't happen. Our position does not believe that the Holy Spirit is not at work today. It's interesting, um, just in conversations with people who are of the charismatic persuasion, and that's maybe the, the way I'll refer to these people, um, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, this is the first thing that comes to their mind, that the Holy Spirit helps you speak in unintelligible language that's a prayer language between you and God. But then you press further, what else does the Spirit do? They can't give you much more because they're so fixated on that. Now, that's not all of them. Some can but the New Testament speaks very highly of the Holy Spirit. He opens our hearts to the gospel of Christ. He convicts the world of sin. He glorifies Christ. He seals all believers. He brings us into God's family by adoption. He sanctifies God's people. He gives us spiritual gifts to edify one another. He guides God's people. He empowers God's people for ministry. He intercedes for God's people. He illumines our minds to understand the Word of God. So yes, we believe and we've always taught at this church that the Holy Spirit is alive and powerful today. We're always taught that. Always believed that. Now, some arguments for the gifts 
ceasing, the sign gifts ceasing. Okay, here's the first argument. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We got into this a little bit last week, so I won't spend a long time on it, but you're in Ephesians 2.20. Remember that this household that we are, this local church, this gathering of believers, we're members of a household of God, and verse 20, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, you understand this. Foundations are not meant to be, to be worked on perpetually, right? Is Brad Mead here? Brad, are you here? Where are you, Brad? Yeah? Somewhere. Okay. Brad, am I correct that you don't work on the foundation forever? You move on? Okay, thank you. Brad's a builder, all right? He knows what I'm talking about. You don't work on the foundation forever. The foundation is laid, and then there's building upon it that's separate from the foundation. Well, here we learn that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So the cornerstone of that foundation, the, the, the first place to start is with Jesus. The apostles and prophets of the New Testament come from there, their teaching, their instruction, and then we're built on that. That's what is taught in the New Testament. Now, apostles. The Scripture is clear about what apostles were. They were messengers, sent ones by Jesus Christ Himself. Think of the original twelve, and then Matthias takes Judas's place. Think of the original twelve, and they were gifted to give new revelation to the church. Jesus actually prophesied about that, predicted that in John 16. They would have new revelation for the church, and that's why our faith, our doctrine is built on their foundation. New Testament prophets given in that time, people who would again speak before God, speak on behalf of God, new revelation, infallible revelation, uh, spontaneous revelation. You could take those things to the bank. This was God speaking for the New Testament church before they had all of this, the New Testament. So the apostles we know from 1 Corinthians 9, were those who had seen the risen Lord. Even Paul saw Him after he was already in heaven because Jesus appeared to him in a vision. So, you've got the 12 apostles, you've got the apostle Paul seeing the risen Lord, and that was one of the things that made them apostles. So, if you say, are there apostles today? No, because apostles saw the risen Lord. They were specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit, Acts 9. They perform signs and wonders, Acts 2.43. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews 2. There are some who argue that apostles are for today, but most don't. Even charismatics, many of them would say that apostles like Paul and Peter and John are not like the apostles today. Or those apostles were real apostles. Hebrews 2, verse 3. Hebrews is a book full of um, exhortations to continue in Christ. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. Then there are five warnings sprinkled throughout. If you do turn away, be careful. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How was this salvation made known to us? Notice, it was declared at first by the Lord, speaking of Christ, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So notice, Jesus taught salvation. He taught that He came for the forgiveness of sins. He said when He came, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. And then there were those who heard that message. This is speaking of the apostles here. And it was attested to us, the writer of Hebrews says. So the Lord taught it. Then those who heard the Lord, the apostles, taught to us and what was behind their teaching. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witnesses. Here were the signs that accompanied their ministry, their teaching. Also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So that's the argument that God used signs to accompany the teaching about Him. The Lord used signs to accompany the teaching about Him. So the church is built on the foundation of this apostolic preaching and these New Testament prophets. Brooke Parsons says this, sign gifts were therefore the servant of the Word of God. And you remember this in Jesus' teaching so much, right? He's doing all these signs and miracles and all these people are fascinated. And there's a rebuke, isn't there, on some of them. He says, you come to me just because you want bread. I've done this miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish. You just want things from me, but you don't listen to my word. The gifts pointed to the word, and Jesus wanted his people to hear the word, to embrace the word, to trust the word, not just be enamored with the signs. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, the Lord taught the way of salvation, those who heard him taught, and their teaching was accompanied by signs and healings and miracles. So this is just an argument for the fact that the apostolic ministry was accompanied by signs and miracles, and we're built on that foundation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. So he's saying that you could know that he was genuine and authentic because the signs that were being done was part of what he was teaching, part of his ministry. You knew that he was an apostle because these miraculous things were happening. So, therefore, if apostles have ceased today, if that apostolic office has ceased today, it would fit that the signs that accompanied them would cease too. Secondly, there is a waning of the sign gifts by the end of the New Testament. There's a waning of the sign gifts by the end of the New Testament. You do know that the sign gifts, tongues and things like that, are talked about in Corinth to the letters of the Corinthian church. Again, 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians, and then in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, it talks about the gifts or the signs of a true apostle in Corinth. You don't have the sign gifts talked about in the other New Testament epistles. I mean, take the three pastoral epistles, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. If this is such a prominent thing and such a necessary thing for the church, you would think that when God is talking to the pastors of these churches, Titus and Timothy, this would be front and center, not even mentioned, not even mentioned. There's a lack of instruction about the sign gifts after the late 50s AD when the book of 1 Corinthians was written toward the end of the 50s. Paul, whose ministry was accompanied with signs, early on, 
tells Timothy at the end of his life, take a little wine for your stomach. Why don't you just heal him? He told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says, I left Trophimus who is sick at Miletus. Paul didn't heal him. He left him who was sick at Miletus. Even today, you've got faith healers. And I don't mean this to mock, but just, you just have to look at the evidence. You have faith healers who wear glasses. And you have people that are healed that still end up dying. Why don't we, if we could heal and that's meant for today and that's all supposed to happen, why do people continue dying? Because the healings in the New Testament were a sign of what's to come in the future when all death is eliminated. Third, the apostles' view of Scripture. The apostles' view of Scripture informs us here. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Second Peter chapter one. Again, toward the end of Peter's life, he exhorts the church to hold on to something. And it's not signs and wonders and miracles. He exhorts them to hold on to the scriptures. That should that should mean something to us. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, let's stop here. He's going to start talking about the fact that Peter and a couple other apostles were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They literally heard God speak to them. They heard God speak and give testimony to the reliability of what Jesus was saying. This is my beloved son. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were showing because Jesus had been teaching them, you're going to suffer like me. I'm going to suffer and die. You're going to suffer like me. And then he gave them this Mount of Transfiguration where they saw the, the glorified Christ, the victorious one. Because if Jesus is telling you so often, I'm going to suffer and die, and you're coming with me, you might start to hang your head and think, I don't know if I'm going to stay in this thing. So then he gives them this vision, the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Father affirms what the Son is teaching, and they see this glorified picture of Christ. He is the conquering one. So yes, he's going to suffer and die, but he's the victor. Okay, so that's what Peter's talking about here. Notice verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. So many people today wanting more signs, more things. God, show us something else. God, prove to me that you're real by showing me something else. Let me, give me the ability to be on a mountain and to hear God speak of Jesus as his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. Let me see that. What's Peter saying? I've got something better for you. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. People can read this and keep it and hold on to it. 
So many can be blessed by this. Only a few were on that mountain. Not everyone got that, said Peter. We that got the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you, church, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, now, now here's Peter saying what I've been telling you, that God gifted the apostles to speak the words of Christ. They wrote them down. We've got the New Testament epistles, and this is how we're to be led. Notice what Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit putting His power in the Word, in the Word that the apostles wrote, and Peter's saying, you do well to pay attention to that. So we, it's it's rather either ignorant or arrogant to say, I need something more. Oh, Peter's saying you need something more than something miraculous. You need something more fully sure, more fully confirmed, the Word of God. Because as Peter would say, the Holy Spirit spoke through these people as they wrote the Scriptures. That's what you need, church. That's what you need. So again, you go back to my background and the pastor saying as people who are barking on the ground and rolling around laughing, no sermon today, nothing from the Word today, the Holy Spirit's moving. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word. This is the Apostles' view of Scripture. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, Paul's talking about the last days, which were here after Jesus ascended to heaven. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. But he tells Pastor Timothy, pastor at Ephesus, how to help the church in the last days. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, Old Testament Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see Peter saying, you do well to pay attention to the Word. And Peter, later in 2 Peter, by the way, refers to Paul's writings like this in 2 Timothy as Scripture. So Paul's saying Old and New Testament, Old and New writings, Old and New Scripture are breathed out by God. And we know, again, by what Peter said, by the Holy Spirit. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything you need is in the Scriptures. 
So what does that mean then for the church today? Chapter 4, I charge you, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, the Father's watching and the Son's watching, Timothy, listen up, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. So I guess we're supposed to preach the Word always. But listen, I've got a better way to do church. What? No. Preach the Word in season, out of season. Reprove. People of God will need to be reproved, rebuked, exhorted, with complete patience and teaching. Looks a lot like Jesus. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We'll exchange the preaching of the word for something else in the last days, according to Paul. But the scriptures are enough for you to be complete. And Paul tells Timothy, so preach the word always. Preach the word. The apostles' view of Scripture should show us the proper place for the sign gifts. Fourthly, the testimony of church history can inform us about the place of the sign gifts today. I'm going to read four quotes to you, and I deleted many more, okay? John Chrysostom, 344 to 407, wrote in homilies. John Chrysostom, one of the best known church fathers, said, about 1 Corinthians 12, okay? About 1 Corinthians 12, he said, this whole place, speaking of 1 Corinthians 12, is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, by their ceasing, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. So in the 300s, John Chrysostom is saying, these things don't take place anymore. This isn't someone from the 21st century in Prescott saying these things don't take place anymore. This is John Chrysostom saying in 300, these things don't take place in the church anymore. Augustine, in the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believe and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time. For there was this betokening of the Holy Spirit, this giving of the Holy Spirit in all languages to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a sign and it passed away. Martin Luther, in the early church, the Holy Spirit was sent forth in visible form. He descended upon Christ in the form of a dove and the likeness of fire upon the apostles and other believers. This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Paul explained the purpose of these miraculous gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that don't believe. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. Or Thomas Watson, these are extraordinary gifts in the church which are now ceased. So when I say church history has made the argument that these gifts have ceased and the, and the idea that they haven't, 
or that they're even something else now, that is new. Mid-20th century for that to be known at a popular level or taught at a popular level. So the office of apostle has ceased and therefore the signs that accompanied them have ceased. The apostles at the end of their lives point Christians to the scriptures, not to the sign gifts. Second point for the morning. Unintelligible speech is not speaking in tongues. Unintelligible speech is not what was meant in the scriptures as speaking in tongues. Again, if you haven't listened to last week, I would encourage you to do so there. By way of reminder, the gift of tongues is that a person would speak the gospel in their language and it would be heard and understood in a different language. That's why Paul says these are things are a sign for the unbeliever, the person who's still yet to come to Christ. They're hearing now the works of God in their own language. So some today, it's really important to understand this. People who don't believe these gifts have ceased, they really fall into two camps. There are those who believe that the actual gift of languages, speaking real languages, or God giving prophecy, some believe that continues on today. Okay, and I think there's a better argument there than those who say, well, the gifts that were then in the Bible, there's something different today and those continue now. So, unintelligible speech is what is known as speaking in tongues today. So, people will say to me, do you think speaking in tongues is for today? I've got two questions there. What do you mean by speaking in tongues? Actual languages or unintelligible speech? And both, by the way, do I think continue on today? Do I, do I not think continue on today? But, but there are two sides. One thinks that the signed gifts, people are actually gifted to speak in foreign languages today on a regular basis, or do people are gifted to do healings today on a regular basis, or people are gifted to utter prophecy that's infallible today on a regular basis. There are some that still believe that, arguing that that's not true. But then there are others who say, well, that's not what the gifts are anymore. Now the gifts are, tongue specifically, of private, unintelligible prayer language is the other argument, okay? A couple arguments against that, or I said a couple, um, three, okay? First, the Greek word glossa, or tongues, is translated languages in the first century. The Greek word glossa was not understood to be unintelligible speech. So understand this, in the first century at the time of the writings of the Scriptures in the Greek Hellenistic world, the Roman, Greco-Roman Empire, in Hellenistic Greek literature at the time, when we find the word glossa, and I'm not t- just talking about the Bible, just all literature that we can find at that time, the Greek word glossa is never used for unintelligible speech. When people would read or hear glossa, they would understand languages, actual languages, Robert Beakey has written an etymological dictionary of Greek words from the first century, and glossa means languages, not unintelligible speech. Again, that should mean something. How did a culture understand a word in the Bible then? That should mean more than it does today. Secondly, tongues were a sign for unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. You'll see this later on in 1 Corinthians 14. 
They're rebuked. The spiritual gifts aren't for you. Therefore, the church to be blessed through you for the church. And Paul says, tongues, the gift of languages, are signs for unbelievers. Unbelievers hear and they respond to the Word of God. They hear in their own language. It's a sign for them. It doesn't fit the claim of today's private prayer language just between you and God. Now, those who hold to this, and I hope that I'm representing them rightly, again, I made these arguments growing up myself, would claim that Romans 8, 26 to 27 teaches a private prayer language. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. Likewise, that's an important word. He's referring to something that he's just talked about. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So just so you know what he was just talking about, he's saying that the creation groans with eager expectation because of the way this world is right now. The, the na- nature's groaning. This is, this is not Eden anymore. This is not perfection anymore. One day there's a new heavens and new earth coming where creation won't grow or won't groan, but the, the, nation, or the, the nature will clap its hands. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Right now, creation's groaning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we are, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The nature, nature groans, likewise the Spirit groans, the Holy Spirit groans, and He who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So God who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit takes your prayers and the ones that you can't even fully articulate and think rightly, the, the Spirit just takes all that you feel and know and brings that to the Father. And the Father understands the Spirit, but it's the Spirit groaning. It's not us groaning. The Spirit is the one said to be groaning here. And this, Romans 8, is a promise for every single believer. I find great consolation here. You ever been distressed and someone says, how you doing? (laughs) I don't know. Well, what's going on? How are you making sense of all that's happening? I don't know. But what I do know is the Holy Spirit understands exactly what I'm feeling, and God the Father listens to the Holy Spirit. So, I'm cared for. (laughs) By the Holy Spirit, I'm cared for by God the Father. When I can't even articulate what all I'm feeling. What a sweet promise. And listen, that's for every believer. We have that. Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians 14 that not everyone speaks in tongues. So if this is something just for those that speak in tongues, there are a lot of believers missing out on this today. Romans 8 is not written to a select few. This is showing us that God the Father listens to the Spirit, and the Spirit knows exactly what's going on inside of us even when we don't, and that's for every Christian. It's wonderfully encouraging when understood rightly. Another argument that's made is that 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll come to this in a couple weeks, um, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, is speaking of a private prayer language. If I speak in the tongues of men 
and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So people will say that little phrase there, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So they'll say there's an angelic language, and I don't dispute that. The angels are speaking somehow to the Lord. But it's saying that that language is a private prayer language for me to utter to the Lord. That's the argument that's made there. Now, it doesn't say that. It's assuming that. It's reading that in. But what I would say is, again, as I often say, and you get, I mean, you can get tired of me saying this, but sorry, I'll say it for 50 more years. Um, Lord willing. We have to understand Scripture in its context. What's Paul getting at here? How is he speaking? This is Paul speaking with rhetorical flourish, isn't it? I mean, look at the argument. This isn't saying there's a gift of private angelic prayer language that's for believers today. That's not what he's arguing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He's talking about the importance of love. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries. Now listen, you start to hear the rhetoric, the hyperbole, if you will. If I understand all mysteries, if I understand everything about what God is trying to show, and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He's using rhetoric to make a point about the importance of love. You can say that you believe from this there is a private angelic prayer language that is meant to be understood by us, and that's okay. It just seems like a big stretch, okay? Another thought from Scripture in terms of prayer, because there is the argument that it's unintelligible speech that's a private prayer language for today. When the disciples asked Jesus, when they heard him praying and they said, can you teach us to do that? Lord, teach us to pray. There's nothing about unintelligible sounds coming from you. He gives them propositional truths to pray to the Father. And this, I got to cut it somewhere. I had a whole section on this, but just I'll give you a little teaser, okay? When God speaks, He speaks clearly. When God tells us how to speak to Him, He gives us clear propositional truths to understand that we can say back to Him. This would be the place for Him to teach us about a private prayer language, Luke 11. But He teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Every word in that is important to understand your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. He taught them to pray those things because they believe those things. They know those things. So when God speaks to us, He speaks for our understanding. That's the doctrine of perspicuity of Scripture, the understanding of Scripture. 
It's, he's meaning to reveal things to us, to, for us to know things. And then he tells us to pray things to him. Propositional truth. Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave them propositional truth to pray to him. It's the third argument against this being unintelligible speech. Those who often make the argument that it's unintelligible speech, that's a private prayer language between you and God, make the claim that Christians need to have this. You need to experience this. And some will flatly tell you there is something wrong with you if you don't. Some won't do that, and I thank the Lord for that. But many will say that you need a second blessing. The movement, one of the movements in this is actually called the second blessing. You need a second blessing. Now, they get that from somewhere in the Scriptures that is not understood in context. And I want to show you that. So, turn to Acts 8. Acts chapter 8, this is one of the places they get the second blessing argument from, maybe the chief place. Acts 8, 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Again, 21st century reader, not a big deal. Huge deal. Jews didn't associate with people from Samaria. Now, Jesus did, John 4, because he's different. Jesus went and met this woman at the well and led her to an understanding of who he was. John 4 is fascinating. Jews, the Samarians, Samaritan people were half-breeds. They were looked down upon. They were compromised. They were the Gentiles. So evidently, there's this report that people in Samaria are embracing the teaching of Jesus Christ and what He did. So the disciples rightly say, hey, we need to find out what's happening. So they send Peter and John. <clears throat> now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So people today would say, see, you've got these people that came to faith in Jesus, they were baptized in Jesus, and at some later point, because some leaders in the church laid their hands on them, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what we have to understand is there's something about that group that's important, and it's where they are from. Every word in the Bible is there for a reason. Why is, what's the big deal for us knowing where these people are from? Because it would have been a big deal to the new Christians there in Jerusalem, the people who were from Samaria were claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. So they went and scoped it out. And notice they send two apostles to go find out. Next, 
Let's look at Acts chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I mention this. So that the question is, why did the Holy Spirit come to people at a second stage in the, books of, in the book of Acts? That's a really good question. Why did the Holy Spirit come at a second stage in the book of Acts? Answer, to confirm that an unexpected people were actually followers of Christ brought into his family. It was a way of confirming that. And you see that with people from a, for who aren't Jewish, Samaritans here, and you see that with the Apostle Paul. If you were, imagine if you were there in Acts 8 and you were watching Stephen being stoned to death, and you see this man presiding over the whole thing, he's holding the cloaks of those, throwing those giant rocks, and this is the man who also was about persecuting followers of Jesus. And then you hear maybe months later, hey, remember that guy that was holding those cloaks? Yeah, he came to become a follower of Jesus. You'd say, I don't know about that. He, uh, he's up to something. <laughs> well, Paul was one where Ananias came and later heard his confession, heard what was said by Paul, and realized, no, this man is a follower of Jesus. He laid his hands on him, Paul received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's, a, it's the Holy Spirit being gifted later on is a sign of validating what's happened with unexpected claims of coming to Jesus. That's what's going on in Acts. If you understand the, the world of the first century, shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, you will see that that was absolutely necessary. So much suspicion going around who's actually a follower of Jesus. Really those people? Uh, really those people? Really that guy? That's what this is. Acts 10, 34. Peter, well, look, look at Acts 10, 1, just to, just to kind of give you the idea for who's involved. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Okay, so we're talking about another non-Jew in Caesarea. Peter summoned to this man. Acts 10.34. So Peter arrives. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. And Peter's preaching the gospel here about God saving people all around the world. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, the message of salvation he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we, Peter speaking, are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's a wonderful way to come meet someone. 
He just articulated the message, the gospel message of God's salvation, the ability to have your sins forgiven. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This whole second blessing thing is under the umbrella of Jew-Gentile salvation. The Gentiles coming to faith is a central teaching in the book of Acts. Salvation is not just for the Jews, for the people of Israel. Salvation is for the whole world. And the Jewish people who came to Christ, the apostles, were sent to verify that in different Gentile areas. That's what's happening here with this second blessing. Look how Peter summarizes this. He goes to Cornelius and his guys, and then Peter goes back to the church and reports back on what just happened. Go down to chapter 11, verse 15. Peter's recounting what had just happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Who's the us? The Jews, new Jewish believers in Christ. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I remember Jesus being the one who will baptize with the Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, who's the them? Gentiles. As he gave to us, the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, this Jewish crowd. Jewish leaders, silence. They were shocked. They're astonished here. Again, please seek to know the context with which books of the Bible were written then. It helps bring to light the understanding. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's the summary. There is why this second blessing, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. You can go to Acts 19, 1 through 7, realize that the Holy Spirit falls on certain people, and you notice it's because they were from Ephesus. Paul's going to verify that this is genuine. He goes to Ephesus, and Holy Spirit falls on them too. The Jew-Gentile connection is behind all of these things. Other than in the life of Paul, when people would hear that this guy, Saul, came to faith in Jesus, and they'd go, I don't know about this. And Ananias goes and confirms, and Paul receives the gift of the Spirit. So, why is this important? Why do this? Why step out of 1 Corinthians? Why, why challenge things that go on today? And I'll admit, a lot of people who hold to the fact that the sign gifts continue on today don't put this type of pressure on people, but many do. Some people have caused others to doubt their salvation or God's love for them by pressuring them to speak in 
in unintelligible languages after their conversion. We could show a raise of hands in this room, and we won't, of how many of you have been in that place where people have pressured you or told you there was something wrong with your spiritual life because you were not speaking in an unintelligible language. That is wrong, and that's legalism. And I don't think everyone's doing it from malicious motives. This is kind of what they grew up being told. So I recognize there are godly people who may do this not out of malicious motives. But I think there are some also that do try to control and pressure who don't do it out of great motives. It does happen today, and you know that. I was a vice principal at a Christian school, and there were people from all different denominations, backgrounds, on staff at this school. We'd have chapel once a week. And there was a girl that in, in the high school that myself and a number of the other teachers were praying for, um, didn't come from a Christian home, didn't know Christ, came to our school. We've been praying for her for a while. <clears throat> um, faithful teachers have shared the gospel with her, been gracious with her. Th- there was a season in her time at the school where she'd been hearing the gospel, looking at the scriptures, and there was one particular chapel where uh, she felt very convicted by her sin. And that's necessary for salvation. That, that's the beginning. And then you get to hear about a Savior who came to forgive sins. She was convicted by her sin, and on her way out of the chapel, I didn't know this until later, until she told me and another teacher later, on the way out of the chapel, three staff members who believed that people needed to speak in an unintelligible language to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit brought her into this tiny little office, and for over an hour were pressuring her, praying for her, physically laying their hands on her, and she ran to the principal's office, I was there as well, in tears, and I'll never forget it, her saying, what's wrong with me that I can't do this? At the point of someone being convicted by their sin, they should be introduced to Jesus Christ, a Savior who embraces. But I would argue she was pushed away from Him, pressured to do something that is not biblical, and even if it was, they're still pushing her towards something she must do for acceptance with God when God sent His Son to offer salvation freely to sinners. I praise the Lord that few of those staff members that had been in her life preaching the gospel to her got to come alongside of her and point her to Jesus. But not everyone has that. Some just know the pressure, and then they're gone. I remember receiving a call from a young man, 20s, who was an adult leader at a youth retreat at his church that taught these things. And he's very close to me. And he called me in tears. Now, this is, this is a man's man. Uh, he doesn't cry very often. And I said, what's going on? 
It was a Saturday night, late. And he said, uh, I'm at this youth retreat. You know, I'm one of the leaders for this youth ministry. The other leaders, I've been in a cabin for a couple of hours. And they've been pressuring me, arguing with me that there must be something wrong in my life because I can't speak in tongues. He's like, Andrew, there's, there's nothing between me and God. I've confessed everything. There's nothing between me and him. And, and he's crying because he's been told there's something between him and God. And he, he doesn't know the closeness of God right now. And we talked, we prayed. He came down to visit me a few weeks later and the Lord graciously pointed into scripture. And uh, it's been a wonderful story since then, but I'll never forget that night. Those two examples are not foreign to many of you. I've heard in the last few weeks, some of you telling me about these types of things. This is not the teaching of the New Testament. And again, some people have wrong motives, I believe, in doing this. Some people don't. That's just what they've been told, what they've known, and they bring that to other people. But I hope that somehow the last couple of weeks there's some light shed on what was the Holy Spirit doing in Acts? Why was He doing it? Which is very important. And how does He shape and shepherd the church today? How do we learn today? What do we do today? I'm sure there are still many questions you may have, and I can answer those as I'm able, but um, I wanted to shed some light on some of these things. I've got a couple, we're, we're way over, but <laughs> all right. For everyone, know and study the Bible in context. A verse plucked here and there isn't helpful without knowing what it's arguing. Um, for those of you who may hold to a different position than we teach, uh, again, that I would argue that church history teaches and that you've heard the last couple of weeks. For those of you that hold a different position, um, please don't disagree with what we've been teaching out of pride. If, if I haven't convinced you with the biblical argument, that's one thing. But if it's, you're just saying I'm wrong, so I don't agree. I, I would ask you not to do that. Or if I reverse my position, people would think less of me. That's not a reason to not reverse a position. Part of Christianity is that we start out, we grow, we learn things, we change our positions as we understand the word more. So it's not meant to be an insult to you. I hope that you don't take it that way. Um, but please, please look at it biblically. Look at some of the passages I've pointed to, and don't just say, I don't believe it because I don't like to be told I'm wrong. Please don't do that. For the rest of us, know that <clears throat> the difference between, know the difference between heretics and those who have a different interpretation of scriptures, some other scriptures than you have. My point here is this, there's a whole spectrum of people who believe that the sign gifts have continued on today. And on one end, you've got Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen who preach a prosperity gospel, a false gospel. Some of them deny the Trinity. Those are heresies. Those are not the same as Bob Coughlin, who believe the sign gifts are still operable in some way today. Bob Coughlin 
trusts Christ, preaches Christ, sings Christ, writes about Christ, writes about the gospel. Some of you are going to go to the Shepherds Conference in another month or so. Um, Bob Coughlin's going to be leading music there. My point is, not everyone who holds these things is into heresy. Some are, and some aren't. John Piper is someone I would commend to you, great teacher of the Word of God, who doesn't hold to the heresies of this group over here, but may not agree with us entirely about what I've said even today. My point is there's a spectrum. Part of biblical maturity is understanding what's okay for believers to disagree on and what's not okay. It's part of biblical maturity. And Paul teaches us that throughout his writings. So please be gracious with people. If people are caught up into heresies, teach them the Word of God, show them the Word of God, make biblical arguments. If people aren't, just realize you've got some people who have a different view than you, and you can disagree and debate as brothers and sisters gathered around Christ, loving Christ Himself. Again, so much more to say, but we got to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this church that is <clears throat> for eight years been so eager to hear and understand the Scriptures. I would ask You, Holy Spirit, to continue to illuminate them to us, shine light on them, help us to understand. Father, if I've been ungracious in some way, I pray that You'd forgive me for that and that, that wouldn't get in the way of someone looking at Your Word. Thank you for how you guide us. Thank you for how you forgive us, you lead us, and you seal us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.